This is Dialogue, a podcast series from American Mosaic. In uh, this episode, I'm in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and uh, this is a conversation with uh, Lincoln Soldaldi, who uh, just uh, ran uh, for Congress in the primary in New Hampshire. And he, in the past, has been a uh, county attorney, and he's also uh, been a mayor in uh, a small town in New Hampshire. Uh, We had a very interesting conversation, and um, you cannot be in uh, New Hampshire without uh, somehow or another uh, talking uh, about politics. So uh, this definitely uh, is about politics, but it's about uh, a lot of other things. And uh, he talks about his uh, background um, in, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, where he was uh, born and raised. A very interesting gentleman. And uh, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. So uh, what follows is uh, about an hour's worth of conversation. So you may want to uh, catch this uh, in a couple of bites. A little bit, um, I guess, uh, some background. Uh, you said you were born and raised uh, in... Yeah, I I, uh, I grew up in an area of Portsmouth uh, that at the time was called Wentworth Acres. Uh, it doesn't really exist anymore, but it was a uh, post-World War II uh, government housing project for returning GIs and their families. And uh, so that's where I spent the first 10 years of my life, which was a great place. It was, um, you know, it was, um, there were 100 kids in the neighborhood, you know, so it was just a wonderful place to grow up. Uh, None of us knew we were poor, (laughs) you know, it was just having fun every day. And and there was such a great sense of community and uh, which... I think really affected me for the rest of my life in terms of you know what what values uh, were important to me. Uh, then we moved to Exeter. My parents, uh, when I was ten, they bought their first first home. Well, actually, the only home they bought, but um, uh, and that's where I grew up until I went off to college. And um, so it was um, you know I had sort of an idyllic childhood in many ways. Um, you know, no, not a lot of uh, you know concerns about anything. Uh, never, never had any fear of anything. Um, so it was uh, it was a great uh, it was a great place to grow up, and uh, as New Hampshire is, you know. How about um, so? Uh, your parents, where did they come from? Well, my dad uh, grew up in Summersworth, which was is a small town in Stratford County. Well, a small city, actually. Um, and uh, that's where my grandfather settled when he came to this country at, uh, uh, you know, not long after the turn of the century. Um, and, ra- and my grandfather and grandmother raised uh, uh, seven kids in Summersworth. Uh, they had 11 kids, but... Uh, you know, back then, several died in childbirth and so forth, some in Italy and some here. Um, but anyway, so my uh, my father grew up in Summersworth and all my aunts and uncles. Um, but I grew up in Portsmouth next to her. And my, uh, my dad was, uh, uh, he was in World War II. Uh, he was in the Army Air Corps, was a flight engineer and, um, and a turret gunner. Um, and uh, very interesting, he almost never... Uh, talked about the war. He had a Purple Heart and a few other citations and stuff, but he uh, never liked talking about the war. Uh, and um, 
I think it was a uh, dramatic point in his life. Well, I mean, I guess any war is. But um, um, so he rarely talked about the war. Um, and I remember when I got drafted in 1969, he, he was uh, very upset about it and uh, with the prospect that I'd end up going to Vietnam. Now, it didn't happen, but nonetheless, you know, who, who knew? You know, you don't know when, when things like that happen. So... Um, but anyway, so uh, my dad was, uh, for, for most of his adult life, he was a chef. He was uh, had his own catering business. He had a number of restaurants uh, over the years. Uh, he was a fabulous chef, actually. Uh, not a great businessman. I don't think he ever made any money at it. Uh, but uh, you couldn't touch his food. It was fabulous. Uh, and as a result, you know, I love cooking because uh, I sort of grew up in a kitchen. Uh, as a result, um, my mother worked uh, as uh, she first worked for a few years at the Navy Yard as a secretary, then went to Pease when that first opened up. She was there a week before they opened. And then but she's from Arkansas. So and they met at a USO dance in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, which and there are some interesting stories about that. But anyway, um, so that, you know, that, that was my, those were my parents. Uh, you know, my mother, um, I think that the, the uh, a lot of my values I got primarily from my mother and, and the, um, probably the most enduring and the most important to her was the concept of being honest. Uh, she used to quote Shakespeare all the time, to thine own self be true and then thou canst prove false to no other. Uh, I think that was one of her favorite sayings. She was probably the smartest person I ever knew as well. Um, she, she didn't have that much education. She went to like a finishing school after high school, but never went to college. Um, and uh, she read three or four books a week. The most voracious reader I've ever known. Uh, and was brilliant. And she rose in the uh, civil service at the airbase. Uh, at one point, she was the highest-ranking civilian woman on base. Um, but anyway, so that you know, that was that were my folks. The, those were my folks, and uh, it was. I had a great childhood. So now, what did you end up doing? <laughs> well, uh, I, I went to Notre Dame uh, for undergraduate, uh, primarily because of. <laughs> I didn't know you'd want to go anywhere else. <laughs> My father was a was a subway alumni, if you will. You know, he never went to college either. But uh, anyway, I was the first in my family to go to college, and I got drafted uh, out of Notre Dame, and then went after the service, went back to Notre Dame on the GI Bill, and came back to New Hampshire. New Hampshire had just opened up a law school, and I went to law school. Um, and becoming a lawyer was something I wanted to do since I was a sophomore in high school because I was on the debating team in high school. And debate and speech uh, ended up being uh, something that I was pretty good at, you know. So uh, whereas, like, my father and all his brothers were like these famous high school football players. You know, Summersworth was, you know, they sort of put Summersworth on the map. You know, so while I enjoyed sports... Um, you know, I was kind of a scrawny kid, didn't quite have the the, the skills or whatever, uh, but I found that I could debate. And uh, so that was always in the back of my mind was the idea to become a lawyer, even though I never knew a lawyer. Um, and uh, so I came back from Notre Dame, went to law school, and uh, finished law school, and then uh, hung a shingle for a little bit, and then was invited back to the Seacoast area. Uh, by um, uh, an attorney that I had a great deal of respect for to work for him, and I went to work for him. And then after two years, he gets appointed to the bench. Uh, 
and uh, I got sold along with the furniture <laughs> in the firm uh, to a couple of guys. They, they were nice enough, but it wasn't a match, and it was nowhere near like working for the the, the guy that I had so much respect for. And then somebody approached me about running for county attorney, which is similar to a DA in other places. So uh, it's just that the jurisdiction is geographically countywide. So I uh, ran against the incumbent uh, at the time and uh, for county attorney, and to everyone's amazement, I won, uh, including my own. And my original idea was that I would um, uh, I'd do that for a term maybe two, uh, to get experience in trial work, because I love being in front of juries. I love trial work more than anything. And, um, and there's no way you could get that kind of experience you could as, that you could as county attorney, because it's like every week you're in front of a jury, practically. So, um, but then I fell in love with the job and um, stayed for uh, nine terms, 18 years. And um, uh, so that was... Uh, really a defining experience for me in terms of my professional life. Uh, there's many things that we did uh, while I was kind of attorney that, um, you know, that I'm extraordinarily proud of. We uh, developed a victim assistance program, for example, that revolutionized the way the system dealt with victims of sexual assault and uh, child abuse, which is why all that's going on right now is so... Um, interesting to me in many ways. Um, and what we did back in the mid-80s and 90s eventually became a statewide standard. So um, as I say, it's something I'm very proud of and um, something that in many ways sort of defined my professional experience. I would imagine that uh, in that position you probably saw many things that, uh, you know, somebody in another profession would, would never see or no question. come across. And no question. I would imagine that it gave you a really good understanding of this whole community, the whole area. Well, it, it I, I don't think it's defined to the area. I think what it did is it gave you an understanding of human nature and uh, in a very broad sense. You know, one of the things, a lot of the sort of little-known aspects of what your job entailed, uh, for example, you were required as the county attorney uh, to respond to what they call any untimely death that was unaccompanied by medical personnel, which meant that you'd go to every homicide, every suicide, every crib death, every, uh, you know, uh, anybody who died and weren't in attendance by medical, you had to respond to the scene, and then you either, uh, if it appeared to be a homicide, you'd notify the AG's office, and they'd send a crew down. Uh, if it was not homicide, you simply would um, authorize or you'd call in the medical examiner to um, authorize removal of the body, etc. So there were a lot of scenes I went to that were just unbelievable. Um, and uh, it's not something really I, I discuss much, and, and but it was one of those things that most people don't really realize that that's part of your duty. So so I saw, I did see a lot, um, and also the cases that uh, nearly all of my own personal caseload was either uh, child abuse or sexual assault cases uh, of all ages, and um, so in that field, you uh, and in that area, you also see a lot about you know uh, humanity and uh, you know what what one person or many people. 
you know, can do to another human being and uh, is pretty extraordinary. So, and I think the most, um, the thing that I like best about being a prosecutor as opposed to a defense attorney, which I was for the remainder of my career, criminal defense attorney, is that the duty that you have as a prosecutor is unique because all attorneys have an obligation to uh, defend their client or represent their client zealously. That's required by the Code of Ethics. But a prosecutor has an additional responsibility, and that is the prosecutor's job is to seek justice, not merely to convict. And that burden is one not to be taken lightly and one that requires you to be a little more circumspect than simply, you know, rubber stamping, oh, this is a bad guy or whatever, and uh, you really have to... Um, uh, understand your role is uh, beyond that of a normal litigant. That's an interesting subject these days, justice. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be in the, in the conversation yeah. almost on a daily basis at some pretty high levels. Yeah. Which uh, gets me to, I'm really, uh, really interested, uh, why did you decide or how did you make a decision that you uh, wanted to move uh, you know, in, into politics? And I really don't know yeah. much other than you were running uh, for office. I don't even really know what you were running for. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about... Well, uh, you know, I wasn't a stranger to politics. You know, obviously, county attorney is an elected position, although not quite on the level <laughs> that a congressional position is. But, uh, and I was also in local politics. I'd been on the school board for eight years, uh, which uh, was probably the most thankless job I'd ever <laughs> undertaken. Um, uh, and I was mayor of Summersworth, which was, you know, uh, really uh, very gratifying because it was, that was the town my grandfather, you know, settled in and uh, built his home. So it was it was an important uh, activity or task or job for me anyway, uh, which I loved. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I'd been in politics and, and I, you know, I'd been involved, uh, you know, since when was Mondale? 84? Was that the Mondale campaign? That was probably our first New Hampshire uh, presidential primary that, uh, you know, we had presidential contenders at our home and entertained and had groups, you know. Uh, you know, and we've been active ever since in presidential politics at least every four years. It's New Hampshire after all, right? So, you know, which is a highly politicized state, much more so than a lot of others, and very retail politics. You know, it's all, you know, I mean, there's a saying in New Hampshire, you know, if, you know, if, if um, you know, if, a, if you don't see a candidate, you know, at least five times personally and shake their hand and have a conversation with them, then, they, you know, they're not on the radar, you know. <laughs> so maybe an exaggeration, but not by much. Um, you know, so, uh, and interestingly, enough, uh, you know, as my wife and I think back about it, you know, involved in every single presidential primary since Mondale, and every candidate we supported lost the primary. Every single one, whether it was, you know, whether it was Bill Bradley or Tom Harkin or Joe Biden or Walter Mondale or uh, uh, Barack Obama in his first election, you know, every single one of them. So, you know, so the prior, we were used to that. You know, we, we can we can we can take that <laughs> kind of an interesting aspect to it all. But anyway, uh, I often wondered why would anyone want our support? You know, we don't have such a great record. But so anyway, the, how I got involved in this time around, because I've been, you know, not held office for a number of years now, uh, not since our 
we lost our house to a fire. It was while I was mayor in Summersville in 2010. And since then, really, had not been involved in politics, um, you know, other than, you know, supporting other candidates or whatever. But that's when I left the mayor's office because we couldn't rebuild our home and so forth. We ended up moving back to Portsmouth or moving to Portsmouth. So anyway, um, so I, I, a number of things happened to me in 2016. In the beginning of 2016, I went to Palestine. Uh, well, that's what the Palestinians call it, but to the West Bank, if you will. And um, I actually had somebody excoriate me for using the term Palestine. There is no Palestine. <laughs> Anyway, um, and so, uh, and I went there to mentor Palestinian public defenders, which was uh, fascinating. Uh, first of all, they didn't need me to mentor them. These were brilliant lawyers. They were wonderful people. Uh, but I really felt that what that experience was, was to give me an understanding of who the Palestinian people are on a very personal level that normally one wouldn't have that experience. Um, and uh, it was a very moving and uh, important experience to me. So I was, there, I was there for several months, and I came back, continuing my law practice. I had a law practice uh, here in Portsmouth, and um, uh, at this point I was uh, so, it was a solo practice doing exclusively criminal defense work. And then I got involved in the general election heavily, worked um, like I've never worked uh, for Hillary Clinton, very proud of Portsmouth. She not only won every ward in Portsmouth, but her lowest margin was 75%. So uh, I was very proud of uh, the work with the people that I worked with in that campaign here. But of course, the election itself was a little depressing. <laughs> and uh, and I after the election, I was like, you know, I got to do something. I'm, you know, um, and I had been thinking about closing my office, sort of retiring. And um, but I decided to go out to Standing Rock. I did a little research uh, and decided, you know, I could I could do something out there, some help. So I drove out to North Dakota, uh, spent several weeks um, in uh, late November, early December of 2016 uh, at the Standing Rock Reservation, uh, which was an incredible experience. Uh, and it sort of reconnected me with a lot of things that were important to me. One of the one of the values that the Sioux taught was a concept of to be of use. And um, and in listening to them discuss this and the and how they would define it, uh, it made me realize that, you know, a lot of my adult life I felt had been engaged in in doing just that, being of use to my community, to my state, to my county, whatever it might be. Um, and I felt that uh, you know, I wanted to continue doing something that was beyond myself. So I came, you know, I came back uh, to New Hampshire and I closed my law practice. Um, and then the first thing I ended up doing is I became an Uber driver, which was uh, a way to at least supplement my meager retirement fixed income. Um, but it also was, you know, Portsmouth's kind of a lively city on the weekends, and so you know, yeah. I felt it sort of carried through that theme of being of use, right? So, um, you know, so I was I was doing that. And in the meantime, you know, because I've always been interested in politics, I'm sort of paying attention to what's going on. And uh, I I strongly developed a feeling or a sense that uh, I was losing, uh, we were losing our country. 
and uh, and I felt that um, we were losing our democracy. I, I felt very strongly that um, uh, this had to change, that we had to do something. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what can I do to make a difference, to change the trajectory of what's going on, uh, because I was and still am in fear um, for our country. And um, uh, and then when our, our congresswoman, Carol Shea Porter, who had had, um, you know, she's been in office since uh, 2008, but it has gone off and on, switched parties every other time. So it has not been a safe seat, so to speak. Um, and so nobody really, I, I don't know anyone who expected that she wouldn't run, but she announced she was not going to run for re-election, which made it an open seat. And um, the person who told me or sent me a text saying, by the way, Carol's not running for re-election, they also, in the next sentence, said, I think you should run. And um, so I thought about that, and I, when my wife got home, I said, uh, what do you think of this idea? And she was very supportive of it, and I said, "Well, all right, let's do it." So, so that's how it happened. You know, I'm, I, you know, as I often repeat on the on the on the trail, you know, I wasn't looking to build a political uh, career. I already had a wonderful career um, in law, and uh, that I was very proud of. So I didn't feel I needed to do it, you know, to build some career or to seek anything uh, higher office or anything else. To me, it was all about. Uh, trying to do something to change the trajectory that we were on, really something to do something to stop um, Donald Trump. That's what it amounted to. That's how I got involved. <laughs> um, it must, uh, yeah, good for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I, I didn't win the nomination, no, but, I, but it was a it was a great experience anyway, and yeah. we certainly got our message out. And I was uh, more than proud of the way, not only the, uh, of the content of our campaign, but the way in which we conducted it. And so, you know, I I feel great about it. You know, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it seems to me that. Uh, this uh, divisiveness, this polarization yeah. that's going on. Um, uh, I have a hard time understanding. I understand disagreeing, but uh, once was a time when we agreed to disagree and we could have uh, Absolutely. discourse. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to watch Firing Line. And, oh, yes. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I did too. Yeah. All that stuff, yeah. Right, right? Yeah, right, of course. Right, right, yeah. Right, which, which was great. And, uh, and I love both of those guys. I mean, you know, and then it was the end. They would, you know, probably go out and have a drink. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, if you practice law, especially if you're a trial lawyer, uh, and if you have been on both sides of um, uh, of uh, an issue, whether it's in, in the criminal law, being a prosecutor and a defense attorney, or in the civil law, you know, being a plaintiff's lawyer and being a, and defending other cases, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're used to uh, arguing uh, and uh, with people uh, and disagreeing with them, and indeed persuading a jury uh, in the criminal case unanimously that your position is correct or whatever, um, but. It never becomes personal, uh, and it never becomes uh, um, 
uh, uh, to a level like you see in the political arena, where it becomes personal, it becomes um, uh, denigrating in, in any way, and uh, and so you know you're always able to you know argue your point. The opposite side argues their point, um, and then the trial's over, and you go out and you sit down, and you have a beer together, as you say, or whatever. You know, it's so. Uh, you know, I've I've sort of lived that. It's never, you know, a political argument shouldn't be something that divides us. But I will tell you that this last election, uh, I felt it within my own family. I mean, you know, we had I had. Uh, events that occurred with with uh, my children or some of my children anyway uh, that I worried at one point was actually going to do irreparable harm to our family um, and uh, uh, it got pretty far and then of course it was so shocking to me that when I sort of recognized you know what was happening um, that um, you know, it was like, wait a minute, we can't let this happen. Um, but uh, that is what underscored for me the seriousness of what's happening in this country and how we're letting or how we have allowed sort of political discourse to um, devolve to the point of um, uh, demeaning the other side and uh, debasing them and and uh, so that there's no real discussion of the issues. There's no real analysis of uh, issue. Issues have become irrelevant to the sort of personal attacks. Now, I think a good bit of that is due to uh, the example that is, uh, you know, so has so debased uh, the presidency itself and uh, and jeopardized uh, this country. But. Um, you know, and he's done it with language that is so offensive. He's done it in so many ways and so many levels. But it's hard to have a conversation with. I, I have, uh, I have a, a lot of in-laws because my wife comes from a very, very large Irish Catholic, well, originally Irish Catholic family, and um, and she's one of fourteen siblings. So you know that kind of large Irish Catholic, um, and they're very diverse. You know, with fourteen kids, they're very, very diver- diverse. Uh, but I love every one of them. They're they're wonderful people. They have great hearts. And um, uh, but uh, on the political scale, there's also a broad spectrum. And um, you know, we can't talk politics. We can't. That's that's such a yeah. Um, it, okay, and then we've got. Uh, it seems like the money side of things ah, today. Unbelievable. It, it's like uh, we're we're so. Uh, um, Everything is about the money. Uh, I don't think this is this the impression I got. Is yeah. that uh, they're, they're they're no longer hide it to say that. Oh right. Oh yeah. You know, hey, oh, you're yeah. on the payroll of special interest. Oh yeah. It is yeah. so obvious. Yeah. It, it, I think the most um, shocking aspect to me, which it shouldn't have been. I mean, I you know I. I uh, on some level, I must have known this, but I, I don't think I truly appreciated it until I actually ran for office. And then, you know, the first order of business is, oh, you need to raise money. Well, you know, the county or local offices, I, I never had to raise money, you know. I, I had to knock on a lot of doors and meet a lot of people, et cetera, et cetera. But I never had to raise huge amounts of money. And very early on, the, the, the sort of the two front runners, if you will, uh, in the race, uh, you know, come out of the box with incredible war chests. You know, one one of them 
raised uh, almost two million dollars, and the other one was uh, almost a million dollars. And it's like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, this was, you know, this was. Uh, I, I had no clue that this was, you know, what what was really required. And then the way it gets done too. This whole thing, uh, a concept they call call time, you know, where you're literally sort of locked in a room, maybe not literally locked, but you're in a room and you have a staff member, whatever, with you, and you spend four to eight hours a day, and all you do are making calls. And you're making calls based upon, um, you know, prior giving and identified donors. I don't know who identifies them or how they find this, but they find these these people uh, who are contributors. Um, and uh, and so you you know you make these cold calls to people all over the country. It doesn't matter. You know, you, Nevada. You, you make a call to Nevada, and you talk to somebody who's who's given you know twenty seven hundred dollars, which was the limit. You know, to like you know ten candidates across the country. You know, and so you have like you know thirty seconds to convince this person to give you twenty seven hundred dollars or whatever they'll they'll give you. You know, and it's it's just extraordinary. Uh, but then, of course, when you get into it, now, we, we didn't take PAC money, we didn't take lobbyist money, we didn't take special interest money, you know. So, we, you know, we started off with handcuffing ourselves, but that's okay. It was a principle involved. And um, But when you look at, really, what's going on in the politics of this country, and you look at the amount of money, and who's getting it, and who are, are funding these things, uh, you have to come to the conclusion that we have a corrupt system, and it's corrupted by money. And that is what uh, they're all uh, appealing to, you know, whether it's the fossil fuel industry or, it, you know, or the pharmaceutical industry or uh, you, you name it. And you look at the votes and you look at the amount of money. I mean, uh, uh, what's it? Paul Ryan got uh, several hundred thousand dollars from the Koch brothers. Now, is it any real surprise that, you know, he supports anything that boosts the fossil fuel industry, notwithstanding that we have a global crisis when it comes to climate change, global warming, uh, all of which, you know, one party completely denies, not uh, because they don't actually believe in science, but because science isn't paying them. Uh, but the fossil fuel industry is, and paying big time. Um, and, and you see it over and over and over again, issue after issue after issue, the influence of big money. And it's, it is on both sides, um, to one degree or another. Uh, but you just get the impression that it's all about money. It's the only thing that matters. And to some people it is. Now, you know, there's some <laughs> perhaps Pollyannish view uh, that this is changing. Uh, I hope that's true. Uh, but uh, the influence of money cannot be under, uh, cannot be overstated, rather. Uh, it just can't be. It's pervasive. I had a... a Conversation with a young fellow, 19, 20 years old, okay, in um, Wisconsin. And I was in Janesville and I drove to Beloit and uh, found him. Uh, he was working in this, this uh, kind of a, a sports place. But anyway, um, smart, right? Young kid. And I was, we were just talking a little bit and I asked him kind of what he thought about, you know, what's going on, politics, what do you think about voting, you know think voting makes a difference? I said, well, 
no. He said, yeah, it's important, you know, it's, it's our right, you know, we should vote. But it doesn't think very much of the system. But then he said something that really struck me. He said, and, and I realized, because I'm an older guy, he said, well, I've only known two presidents. Obama, I was just a little kid, so I'm the only president, and now I know Trump. And I said, well, what do you think of Trump? And he said, I don't know, he just seems kind of... It's kind of wacky, some stuff, but uh, you know, he said, you know, really, I don't know because I don't, I can't really have a comparison. He's got no wow. basis for it. Wow, that's just, amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> when you realize what he said, he yeah, said, yeah, oh, yeah. shit, yes. Oh, yeah. you know, I was a little kid, Obama, right. and then so right. I've only known two presidents. Wow, wow. And then I said, uh, that's a, that's a great I, point. <laughs> yeah, and then I said something about, uh, well, how about, uh, you know, the idea, you know, big money buys, buys everything, buys politicians, whatever, you know, what do you think about, uh, uh, you know, and I he kind of talked a little bit, and then I said, well, do you, do you think there's hope? Do you think uh, we're, this is going to change or something? He said, no. He said, this is just going to, this is just the way it is. Uh, that was kind of, you know, yeah. and then I asked him, well, where do you get your news? Where do you get your information? So I guess, well, mostly YouTube. Wow. YouTube. That's the first I've heard that answer to that question. Because yeah. I, I, we I, I did. Yeah. I, I always ask uh, people about social media. Sure. You know, yeah. Absolutely. And because uh, I'm interested in how much they're glued to Facebook, and, and uh, you know, I had a lady in Alabama tell me that. Uh, uh, well, uh, you know, I used to. You know, the newspapers. I don't know. You know, I kind of did that, and then uh, so I kind of. Uh, uh, he's, she said, uh, well, pretty much, and then on Facebook, I got rid of a bunch of friends, that, but the ones that didn't agree with her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I got, so yeah. got my news from uh, Facebook and Fox. And I, Oh, gosh. Okay, we know what that is. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was interesting, going back to the young fellow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things, uh, be interested in what, what your thoughts are about, uh, you know, young people today and... You know, the idea that a lot of people didn't vote in this last election, which I was surprised at the number because... Yeah. Well, the, in fact, the largest number, uh, the, the largest block were non-voters. The largest block, non-voters. A majority did not vote of eligible voters. That's, that's unbelievable on so many levels, you know, really. It's frightening, really. You know, because it undermines uh, a belief or a concept or an understanding of really what the foundation of the country is about, you know. I mean, that's really, you know, we should have 100% voting, <laughs> you know. We should have, um, people should be engaged, people should care about this, uh, you know. Um, and uh, so that that's one of the saddest commentaries, I think, is the, how many people you know, did not bother to vote, or people who don't think it makes a difference. I mean, I think this last election um, proved anything. It was the importance of voting. Yeah, I, and I guess, uh, you know, for me personally, which, by the way, and this when this is done is not my personal view on right, anything. Right, right. Um, but uh, I, I hope that it's uh, to people, have, it's a wake-up call. Um, and I'm also, I hope... Uh, I have a granddaughter's 18, first year in college in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a small liberal arts yeah, college. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, I had her do a camera thing. That was interesting. Oh, good. Yeah. Good, yeah. 
and uh, I know Michigan pretty well. And uh, uh, coming from Notre Dame, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I was really. Uh, I'm hoping that you know her generation will get engaged and start voting and get into yes, in, yeah, uh, in yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts about young people? Well, it, it's funny when you mention Grant. I mean, going back to my reason for running, the, the, the first issue that I was, and because it was one of the first things that Trump did, was to withdraw from the Paris Accords. And to me, that is, it's not really about my life because, you know, I'll have a few hot summers maybe. I can live through those. But it really, to me, was about my grandkids. I've got two little ones, um, four-year-old and three-year-old, who are the light of my life. Just amazing. Of course, they live in, they live in California, so that makes it a little tough. But uh, I think about their life because they will pay the price for what we are ignoring now. Um, on a world level in terms of climate change, in terms of global warming. Um, th they'll live with the consequences. And, uh, and th so that really was part of that whole motivation for me, was trying to make a difference for their life. Um, uh, you know, every... <laughs> you know, I've been around long enough and seen the political cycles long enough. It's, it strikes me that uh, nearly every cycle... Um, those of us in our generation, you know, lament that the younger people aren't voting, you know, uh, and and it always has been people in, in, you know, I don't know, 55 and over that have been the largest uh, voting block in terms of, not, not as a block necessarily, but in terms of the demographics of who votes in election. And every single election that I've ever been involved in, uh, I've always heard, we're going to get the young people out. We're going to get, you know, every single election, and this is, and, you know, when they rally around, they get the universities involved, and they, you know, do this and that. And yet, time after time, election after election after election, um, we find that that hasn't happened in the numbers that we all would wish it had. Now, I don't know, we'll have to wait and see in 2018 what the numbers end up being um, because it's sort of this eternal hope <laughs> that the youth are going to save us right from ourselves. And, um, uh, uh, you know, that's that's the perennial, uh, the perennial hope. Um, We'll have to wait and see. I'm not convinced that we're going to see any any difference. Um, and actually, throughout our campaign, I had you know all, young people were uh, basically the ones who I relied upon who were working my campaign, and uh, uh, because they have the energy and the commitment and anything, everything. So, um, uh, and they were great, and I, lo I loved working with them. Um, and, uh, you know, and they were so hopeful and so committed to, you know, this is going to be different, this is going to be different. And I kept saying, well, you know, just look at the numbers, though, <laughs> you know. Um, but we'll see. I, I would love to believe that the, that the young people are going to. Now, we are seeing younger, younger and younger people running for office, which I do think is a good thing, you know. And I say that as the oldest guy who ran in my election. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there was sort of, I, I fit every demographic that was the wrong demographic, you know. I'm white, I'm old, I'm male, you know, you name it. <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, there was, there was a lot of, uh, uh, 
I don't know, humor in, in the fact that I was I was running on some levels anyway. Um, and uh, so I, I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful that you know the next generation is going to do better, and I hope that they do. Um, we're seeing a lot more younger people running. Our own uh, delegation is going to get younger automatically because, regardless of who's elected, it's somebody younger than who's been there. Uh, and uh, when I look at the Kavanaugh hearings right now going on, and I see that lineup of Hatch and Grassley, you know, and these old white dudes, many of whom were there when Anita Hill testified, and I think this is the last thing we need is these old white guys who have no idea what it means to be sexually assaulted, what it means to go through uh, and come forward, um, the amount of courage it takes. Um, it's its just amazing to me. You know, I mean, you had uh, Hatch saying, uh, you know, oh, well, I, I believe him. I know him and he's a good guy. And I'm, and I'm thinking about all these people I, I prosecuted over the years, whether it was, you know, Catholic priests that were revered in their community. Had one guy had been the mayor of Dover and was had just been awarded Citizen of the Year and we indict him for sexually assaulting young boys uh, and convicted him, by the way. Um, you know, so it's like, you know, yeah, it's always the good guys. It's always the ones who, you know, and yet completely dismisses the victim. And you think about what she had to go through just to get to the point to let somebody know that this even happened to her. And clearly she has suffered because she's carried it with her all these years. It has never left her, uh, and it has affected her whole life. Uh, and the idea that she made this up, I'm sorry. That does not pass the smell test whatsoever. Uh, but, of course, what they're interested in, what the old white guys are interested in, uh, is not justice. They're just interested in power. This, it's all about power. That's that's the game in Washington. Uh, you know, the, I, I like to say lately, I've been saying it a lot. The most evil man in America is Mitch McConnell. You know what he did uh, with the with the uh, 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 Merrick Garland uh, nomination is um, just pure evil. Just pure evil. You know, undermined uh, undermined our entire. Uh, constitution and constitutional order and uh, the right of the president to uh, to, to nominate, you know, uh, his own. And interestingly enough, they were talking at the time that if Hillary were elected, they wouldn't allow her to have any nominations as long as she was, quote unquote, under investigation. Uh, and yet here they are uh, giving, you know, the the orange orangutan, uh, you know, two nominations. Uh, it's just... It's all about power for these guys. You know, they, these are, it, uh, it's very disturbing. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, part of this, what I'm doing is, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we have the run-up to the election, the yeah, election yeah, and, yeah. And, and, you know, everything that seems yeah. like uh, that surfaced, because it was just like stuff got peeled back and came up. It, there's nothing that hasn't been... This isn't new. I mean, there's been stuff that's been simmering for a long time. And I'm kind of interested in uh, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, why? Why did we get to this point? I mean, uh, I think it seems to me that everybody wanted a change of some sort. 
Okay, I mean, change at any cost, change, uh, I mean, the whole idea of we don't want a normal politician, we don't want somebody that's, you know, just here's another, you know, this is why maybe to me it was like why Bernie, this is even, this is why Trump. Uh, you know, I've had people say, well, he's a good businessman, he's a terrible businessman. Oh, um, he, he, but, but yeah, a lot of people yeah, get started. Yeah, yeah no, I he, mean, please. But, um, uh, you know, unless <laughs> you know, unless you're a crook. Yeah. But anyway, right. uh, right. the the whole idea of the change, and it seems, you know, we've had these benchmark things. I had somebody say to me, and I think this was uh, really a good point. And this was an immigrant. I said, well, you know, so many, th you know, nine eleven changed a lot. And then, of course, we had the Great Recession. And, uh, you know, we could say, well, we had the lost decade, and then we had the lost decade before that, and we got a whole bunch of people that are making, you know, half of, you know, somebody that was a, you know, family of four, they used to make $35 an hour, they're now working $8 an hour, one job, $12 an hour, right. another job. Right, and still can't make ends. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, the Janesville story, which I went there, but this is a great book. I don't know if you've read a Janesville in American story by Amy, uh, Amy Goldstein. It's a good book. Oh, okay. Yeah, I will check that out. That's actually why I went there. Huh. Uh, so she tracked five families through uh, the whole the whole process. Yeah, of just yeah. everything just blowing up. Sure. And anyway, uh, so you've got all of this these things going on, and you've got and then then on top of that, you've got. Uh, the drug thing, uh, you know, this Purdue Pharma, uh, you know, what, eight years, ten years ago? Uh, oh, it's not addictive. That's not oh, addictive. that's right. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely, and, and, yes. And they were pushing that, and then they yes. got the guys in the white coats to be their mules for the oh, drug. Oh, exactly. You know? Oh, yes, and yes. Then, uh, you read to, Dreamland, didn't you? <laughs> exactly. And then they, they went to, they, you know, and they targeted all these industrial areas oh, yeah. where these people with competitive motion had back pains yeah, and stuff. Yeah, So the doctors were... Into the, into the, you know, yeah, started you know, building pain clinics and, yeah, the whole nine years. You got all of that. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it's not addictive. Yeah. yeah. I went to Portsmouth, Ohio. Did you? All right. Well, very good. Scary. Yeah, yeah. Today, yeah. Scary. My campaign manager, uh, her family was from Portsmouth, Ohio. Really? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I understand, and, and, and it's like, uh, you know, people are hurting. And, and well, they are. No one's looking out for they them. They are. Um, and I think that's why... They just wanted to blow up the system, and they did. They did. They did. I don't think they realized what they were doing, but they did. They blew up the system. Um, I actually, uh, Chris, there's many, there's many ways to analyze all of this and how we got here. I mean, in some ways, uh, I kind of view this beginning uh, with Reagan, but even aside from that, to get a little bit away from the politics of it, in many ways, there was a perfect storm after with the election of um, Barack Obama, because Barack Obama um, gave so many people uh, hope. I mean, that was his campaign. And it was clear that people were looking for hope. And the other part of it is he represented uh, a decency that we hadn't seen in a long, long time. Uh, through his uh, speeches and through just the way he would conduct himself and, and comport himself in office. Um, 
And, of course, he had a tremendous challenge uh, in being the first uh, black president, the first African-American president. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember the night of his election and shortly after that, although she was criticized for it, Michelle Obama talked about how that night was the proudest she'd ever been of this country. A lot of people criticized for it. But I felt the exact same way. I felt the exact same way. I had never been proud of my country. And because I, for most of my life, I would not have thought it possible, um, except he was such an extraordinary uh, messenger, uh, and particularly with a message of hope. Um, but I think what his election did, the uh, what was unexpected about what that election represented, was it... Um, exposed inadvertently the underbelly of America. And the underbelly of America is racism. And that's what it exposed in a way that for um, a lot of us was shocking. I mean, because uh, we, we first observed his election as, oh, we finally can get beyond the racism of this country. And it actually had the opposite effect. Beginning with McConnell on the day of Obama's inauguration and, and um, deciding and having that uh, caucus with all these Republicans saying we are not going to allow this, uh, this man to have any victories. We are, he will be a one-term president. Everything we do has to be to ensure that. And, and the only basis for that uh, was his race. I mean, there was nothing he was promoting in terms of policy or anything else that was any different than any, or it was not vastly different from any other uh, Democrat. In fact, he went uh, much further than most Democrats historically to try to accommodate the Republicans to, I mean, even the uh, Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare was a Republican concept. You know, it came out of the Heritage Foundation, of all places. And, uh, and he, I, I think Obama's biggest, uh, I don't want to say sin, but his, his biggest failing was his naivete, that he believed that goodness uh, was enough to pers persuade uh, Republicans to do the right thing for the country. But they were only interested in power. That's, that's what really got exposed. And the basis of it was racism. And, um, and, and so, uh, and of course, he was reelected. He's the last president to actually win a majority of the popular vote, you know, as well as very wide margins in terms of electoral college, notwithstanding Donald Trump's fantasies. Um, and somehow that that set us up for for what we now have. Uh, the thing that the last election taught me that stunned me was I did not understand until this last election that misogyny is actually more pervasive than even racism. That was the shock to me. Um, it just is stunning uh, that that's the case, but I I absolutely believe that, which is why I think now you're having a reaction to that, and you're seeing record numbers of, of women, particularly young women, running women vets, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, so 
not sure where we started and where I'm going with this, but anyway, um, I, I, to, to me, it what what has been exposed is both racism and misogyny, and these are fundamental characteristics of this country, and it's you know it, it's something we need to we need to get beyond you know, um, and what and and of course Donald Trump was like the perfect. Uh, messenger to play to fears. Uh, it's it's so Machiavellian, and it you know it's like th- this is right out of you know the playbook. And I I've been rereading <laughs> George Orwell, 1984, because it is so stunning. I mean the whole perversion of language, you know, and what was black is now white. What was white is now black. Oh, our enemy of yesterday. Oh no, now it's you know the new. You know whatever the new enemy is today, and and the the um, uh, the playing on people's fears, the whole immigrant thing, I, I, which I've never understood. I'm like, well, first of all, we've had negative net immigration for like about I don't know five years now or something. And I always ask people every every group I get into when when immigration comes up, I say, okay, I want to show of hands. How many people have lost a job to an illegal immigrant? Raise your hand. Of course, nobody has. So, okay, how many people have lost their jobs to an immigrant? Of course, nobody, right? And it's like, you know, this is an uh, uh, an issue that doesn't exist, actually. It's purely manufactured, you know, and, you know, and, and just on people's fears. I mean, from day one, oh, they send us their rapists, you know. Uh, it's like... I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know. And, and of course, for me, it relates to... A, I haven't told you about my other grandson... Uh, it was actually a foster grandson, but uh, we have now a member of our family. It's a young man who, uh, as a teenager, uh, was facing death and persecution in his country in West Africa. He fled there seeking asylum in the United States and thinking that he'd get refuge and safety. He was met on the our southern border, which he eventually got to, um, by ICE, and what ICE did <laughs> uh, is they forged his birth certificate so that it would appear that he was over 18 when he was not. He was 15 or 16 at the time. Uh, but the reason they did that is because if he was over 18, they could detain him in a facility. And so he ended up getting detained, first shipped to Boston, then up here in New Hampshire to Stratford County, where there's a detention facility for uh people waiting, you know, deportation or whatever. Uh, Fortunately, he was granted asylum eventually. He uh, is now a student at Summersworth High School, and I'm proud to say it was my son who opened up his home to him and uh, who became his foster parent. And um, he stays with my wife and I on weekends because he works at the Friendly Toast here in Portsmouth. Uh, and he refers to me as grandpa and my wife as grandma. So uh, very proud of that. Uh, but, you know, I saw firsthand what, uh, you know, what people who are supposed to be protecting uh, refugees uh, have been doing under this administration. Uh, you know, I, And um, the level of cruelty uh, to me, is one of the most shocking things about this administration. Whether you're talking about tearing children from their parents, from their mothers and fathers at the border, who are seeking asylum. You know, asylum is different than somebody crossing for you know economic opportunity, or whatever. Uh, 
but even then, you know, it's uh, just the whole thing about immigrants, because we're all immigrants, aren't we? I mean, unless you're Native American or African American, you know, as I, I said often, you know, you're here because of because of immigrants. I don't care if those immigrants came 200 years ago or they came last week. You know, this is who we are. We are a nation of immigrants. And, uh, and yes, every group has kind of had their spell of, you know, resentments, the Irish, the Italians, the Greeks, you, you know, you name it, everyone. But nonetheless, we have, they've always contributed to the advancement of this country. Um, kind anyway. of, uh, yeah. We kind of have this white privilege because we've oh, yeah. become, uh, well, we're just Americans now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. <laughs> you know, and of course, oh, we all got here legally. Well, I don't think so. First of all, our, our laws didn't always differentiate. You know, there wasn't always. In fact, uh, Italians, which is my heritage, um, uh, you know, they were called WAPs, you know, and that was W-O-P, without papers, is, is what that uh, was a reference to so you know, and then you had the shanty Irish. You had you know, every group has, has faced it. But I do think you're right about 9/11. 9/11, um, and interestingly enough, about 9/11, you know, we're best friends with the Saudis. Yet, you know, nearly all of the hijackers were Saudi. You know, they weren't Afghans. They weren't uh, Iraqis. You know, whatever. Um, but uh, it's it certainly did. But you know, it just seems you know if you. Uh, and again, it's part of uh, Orwell, it's part of Machiavelli, you know, the whole idea is, you know, demonize a group of people, the other, and uh, put people in fear of that other, and then you control them. You control them. And that's what it is. It's all about controlling people to do what's counter to their best interests. That's the stunning aspect of all of this. All these people that think Trump is going to deliver them. No, he's delivering for the billionaires. No question about it. If you're a billionaire, you're doing better today than you did yesterday. And you'll be doing better tomorrow. But, you know, you don't really need any help if you're a billionaire. You know? There isn't anything more you can buy, you know, uh, with, with another billion. An extra billion, you're not going to be able to buy anything, you know, that you can't buy now. So it's just stunning, you know. It's stunning. Great conversation. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. Um, it's a lot. Of, I mean, it's good because, I mean, there's, there's you know, you could talk forever about what's going on. Oh, I know, I know. Well, that's true. And I feel like I have, you know, yeah, the yeah. last several months. So. Well, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I certainly commend you, uh, personally. Well. Um, yes. Um, we are certainly in interesting times. Yes, uh, we are. Uh, yes, we it are. It was uh, way back when I was young in the seven, younger in the 70s. Um, uh, also interesting but, times. Yeah, but I, but I was, yeah, very, well, very interesting yes, times. Yes, yes. In a little different way. But, yes, a different but way. I, but I also, I was younger. And, and, and we were young, and, yes. And business and whatever. And, and I was kind of a little student of history and previous times. And I was just thinking, you know, the Industrial Revolution and all kinds of things. And I was going like, and funny, I was kind of lamenting. I said, well, I wish... I wish we were really in interesting times because probably we were. But at my age, I didn't understand how interesting they were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, and then I ran into something. I was working on a project, and then the project involved a lot of quotes. And then there was a quote that uh, was uh, attributed to an ancient uh, Jewish cursor, but it's actually different people, sort of Russian or Jewish. But anyway, it says, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times. 
Yeah, which was supposed to be a curse, actually. Right? Well, it was exactly. a curse. It was right? a curse. You know, it was a curse. Was the point. It right, was exactly. Either, it was either a Russian or Jewish, but yeah, either yeah, way, right. or maybe it's a Russian Jew. <laughs> it can but, be. But, yeah. but anyway, I thought that was you know, yeah. the curse. Yeah. <laughs> yes. you live in, uh, whoa. Yeah, I know. I Here know. we are. Well, I know. And, and for some of us, we've actually lived through uh, more than one interesting time. And, um, and it's funny because I felt... Um, I mean, this campaign to me was a lot about, and I it resurrected a lot of feelings because you know as a young person in the late '60s, um, uh, you know I was involved in a lot of uh, activism and protests, and you know I was politically active back then, uh, not as a candidate but as as an activist and a protester, right? As, as many of us were. You know, and then getting drafted, which <laughs> seemed to be a little poetic justice by the universe or something. But anyway, uh, and then you know, getting through that, and then continuing to protest and so forth. But I, I see parallels uh, in some levels with what was going on back in the '60s and '70s with what is happening today, and it's the way that I felt a connection to the young people today, you know, because, you know, I was looked upon by a lot of young people as, oh, that's just an old white guy, right? <laughs> so, we don't, you know, uh, and yet I felt a kinship because of, uh, and, and what young people don't necessarily understand, but certainly people our age do understand, you're still that 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, whatever, pick your age, you're still that person in your head. You know, it's not until you go past the mirror, you're like, oh, my God, you know, you're old now. <laughs> but but that's where you are, uh, you know, if if uh, if you were, you know, self-aware at the time anyway. And um, and so, you know, that's why I felt a kinship with, with a lot of the young people today. It's like, you know, I and, – and so my message to them is, you know, first of all, get involved, you know, um, you know, and, and certainly, you know, vote. It is so important, you know, to, to get involved, to be engaged. Um, you know, this is a great country. It is such a wonderful country. And if you've traveled it at all, the diversity of it, both just in the topography alone, is fascinating. There are areas that seem like you're on another planet, in fact. And uh, uh, and it's a beautiful country. And the people are salt of the earth for the most part, you know. Uh, you know, going to school in the Midwest, uh, you know, Indiana, Notre Dame, uh, you know, I met such wonderful people in the Midwest, you know, people from South Bend, not... I'm not talking about the, the university. I'm talking about the, just the people. You know, and these were hardworking people who um, just were wonderful people, you know. Um, and I've found that everywhere in this country that I've, that I've been. And, and, uh, and you know, we need, to, we need to believe in each other, I think, you know. But I think that the, the thing is, is people have to be engaged. They can't just sit back. That's it for this episode of Dialogue from an American Mosaic. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends.